Hello, Richmond Public Library listeners, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Greater Richmond History Podcast. I'm Alex, a librarian with the Richmond Public Library, and on this podcast, I'll be talking to local historians and preservationists about our city, both where it's been and where its history is headed. In this episode, I'll be talking with Anna Edwards. Anna's a public historian who's led the charge to memorialize sites in Chaco Bottom, once the United States' second largest slave trading site. Since 2004, Anna and the Sacred Ground Historical Project have advocated for a memorial park that would reconcile Richmond with its past. Anna has a lot to say about the project and where it's headed in the future. Give us some context um, and tell me about your background and how you became a public historian here in Richmond. Well, I became a public historian kind of by backing in, you know, through the back door. I was Mm -hmm. a social justice activist that um, was really drawn in by the history of Gabriel's Rebellion and of, you know, of that history on the streets of Richmond in Shackle. And so, you know, really sort of got me one of the way that the story of Gabriel's Rebellion uh, articulated and uh, a way of understanding the beginnings of the nation uh, and how that, you know, how that took place and how it um, could be understood through this, you know, sort of one particular episode. And then, um, and then the other part of it was the effort to, um, um, reclaim by which we mean make, uh, the history known and then get people to come and experience the actual location of where the first municipal uh, cemetery established for the burials of black people exclusively uh, was created in Chuckle Bottom. And so those two things together meant that um, because at that point it was how do we make the public more aware? I felt we felt like Richmonders kind of knew something about Gabriel's Rebellion just Broadly, mostly the thought was, you know, it was a failed rebellion that had, you know, these awful consequences, but it really wasn't understood for its deeper implications for, you know, the context within which it happened in terms of how um, the nation was developing, but specifically in the middle of a presidential election, you know, and and the, the issues that were being discussed and decided at that moment and how it played into uh, having an effect on the way that the election played out. Um, but also, you know, again, the um, implications specifically on the institution of slavery and uh, on the repercussions that came of it and how they themselves also played into policy that would come over the period uh, leading to the antebellum era. So I, it, it was just really hard to avoid the fact that, fr- you know, by putting our feet on Chaco Bottom, in this spot that used to be the burial ground, also the site where he may have been executed um, you know, mm-hmm. for the crime of attempting a rebellion. But to be able to stand there and tell this very American story, which is typically not described as a very American story, and know that, you know, eight blocks up the hill was where Patrick Henry gave his speech, you know, in or about the year that Gabriel was born, and mm-hmm. that Henry was an attorney, uh, who also did work for other, uh, landowners or plant and plant, uh, other planters that there was a whole controversy about Thomas Prosser Sr. who owned Gabriel and he got booted out of the House of Burgesses 
and then he had to get all these men to help uh, help him get his position back. I mean, you know, it's just like all these stories, which, you know, take, you know, it just takes you into all kinds of, you know, settings and, and subjects, you know, within learning American history, uh, we get a very particular narrow kind of, you know, delivery of the, of, of what people think it's important for us to know. And yet we actually need more of these details. So just to say, learning that as I was part of a group that was trying to advocate for racial justice in terms of being able to make a site of African-American history that was of historical significance to the city as a whole, championing Mm -hmm. making that visible and making it a priority in the public history landscape of the city of Richmond. Um, So those two things combined, you know, eventually made Hey, I was an artist by training when I went to school 30 years ago, <laughs> but I'm um, clearly, you know, working on being a historian. And then I decided to get my degree at, at VCU and, and sort of formalize that. Okay, so we covered Gabriel's Rebellion um, as well as the, the burial ground. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just, for uh, any anyone who is new to Richmond or Richmond history, can you sort of talk about the different sites in Chaco Bottom, um, break down their significance a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll confine it to, you know, our, our work has been focused on the African burial ground, which is now part mm-hmm. of a community proposal for a Chaco Bottom Memorial Park, which we helped, um, bring into being back in 2015. Um, mm-hmm. and the footprint is essentially three acres north of Broad Street between Interstate 95 and, uh, the elevated railroad tracks. And then about three, maybe four acres, uh, south of Broad Street that incorporates the Devil's Half Acre Lumpkins Jail site and a large swath of the parking lot that is um, used for Main Street Station. And then uh, a couple of blocks east of uh, the railroad tracks between Broad and Grace Street and then between the railroad tracks and 17th Street. <clears throat> so that particular footprint, which we refer to as the Memorial Park footprint, um, contains sites that really can take you from the earliest history of the city of Richmond when it was first laid out as a town in 1737, which is about four years before it was incorporated as a city. And then through the, uh, through the revolution, uh, when it became the capital of the state the colony it wasn't as well i guess it was technically technically speaking they had declared independence but uh there was a lot of work to do yet <clears throat> but it becomes the capital in uh 1780 i think they they made the decision in 1780 and it was put into effect in 1781 and then through that whole post-revolutionary period where there is a lot of debate about whether or not to end slavery and where there is in fact because of this sort of liberalizing of the idea of of how black people should be treated and how slavery should be treated. It was this really broad, you know, period. Uh, well, actually, it was a narrow period of um, mm. a lot of manumissions. Uh, there was that law that was changed in 1782. Is that right? That made it easier for an individual slaveholder to actually manumit someone that had been illegal. I think that they was. To, yeah, I think that was 1782. 82, yeah. 
so we're, we're sort of able to articulate these different chapters of Richmond history within this small footprint in Shackle Bottom. And we get to the antebellum period where um, the slave trade is now centered on the domestic trade in enslaved Africans, and Richmond evolves to become one of the most important debarkation points for the internal slave trade in the 30 years leading up to and through the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So that area, um, you know, contains uh, the, ar- you know, archaeological prospects for uh, slave trading sites that, that simply covered that area over that period of time. The Lumpkins Jail site, if people are not familiar, was um, a, a large slave trading complex that was owned and run by a man named Robert Lumpkin. And he was also a little bit special because he offered the additional service of breaking rebellious slaves. So literally planters and slaveholders would bring uh, enslaved people to him to break their spirit. So to be tortured for a period of time <clears throat> until they decided to be cooperative or until they felt they were punished enough and then they were typically sold uh, uh, to the deep south. So Lumpkin was a special character in the slave trading world of Richmond, but he was not the only one who operated at the scale that he did. So the Lumpkins Jail slave trading complex is an example of some of the larger uh, trading operations that did exist in uh, in Richmond at that time. The site was excavated uh, through the, uh, the work of the Slave Trail Commission in uh, collaboration with Richmond Hill and the James River Archaeology Group did the actual work. And uh, it revealed the entire footprint of that particular slave trading complex. And that's, that was a big deal because nobody was really expecting to find that much. Um, so that's on our map now, right? We've seen it. We know that it's there. It's uh, covered in a park now, but the intention is to find some way to enclose it in a building, probably a museum structure that might allow the site to be reopened and maybe continue, uh, continued learning to go on. And then that opportunity is there for the African burial ground, perhaps, and for the other sites that were contemporary. Uh, to the Lumpkins Jail site. And one of the reasons why there's such an emphasis on on doing that in, in Richmond is because we make the one point on the one hand that slavery was an intrinsic part of the culture of the United States. And so it existed almost, you know, everywhere. There's no place that you can go where slavery wasn't a part of the economics and because of that, it was a part of the social fabric, um, you know, of our society, north, south, east, west, um, different ways in different regions in terms of the details of that. But it's very much there. And of course, it's deepest and, and most harshly felt um, in the in the south because of the physical conditions and because of the you know, terrible practice of selling people away from each other, um, literally not allowing family ties to to stay uh, robust and, and for people to remain connected. So, it's, you know, it's got a real horror, um, you know, component in it just that way alone. Richmond's role in the domestic slave trade was huge. As I mentioned before, it was it became the second largest only to New Orleans in that period in that 30-year period leading up to and through the Civil War. 
So mm-hmm. Virginia becomes a really critical state for the export of black people from the East Coast to uh, through the Deep South and onto the West. It's not the only one. It's just one of the biggest. So, you know, the scale at which the trade is going on in Virginia, it's going on similarly in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, uh, Maryland, uh, Washington, D.C., Alexandria, right? Mm-hmm. All of these places, all of these port cities are, are, are actively involved. And you make a lot of money trading in enslaved people in that period. And so it was something that, you know, lots of people that, you know, considered themselves respectable, uh, others who were not seen as respectable, but nonetheless, you know, being a, being, um, a successful businessman gets you a lot of credit in, uh, you know, in, yeah. in society. So it, it was does. all part of that. Yeah. And, and that was all happening. I mean, that was all happening down there and it was, it's an unavoidable, enormous, uh, part of daily life and, uh, and the daily economy of the city of Richmond. So the work that, you know, that we began just to uncover the story of Gabriel's rebellion and to talk more about, you know, the fact that black people were a part of the city and the, and, and part of its making and a part of its daily makeup, um, became a much, much bigger. And I think that's also that sort of activity. Slave trading is not something that has been really memorialized in other cities either. I don't know that mm-hmm. New Orleans, which was the biggest trading hub, has any major heritage center or um, any sort of large scale mm-hmm. memorial to their history either. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I would say it's so I, I would I would beg everyone not to be surprised. <laughs> It's only it's only very recently that it's become a part of um, one that there's been the space for it in terms of, you know, the emotional space, the political will, the funding, the, the, the interest in being able to focus on unpacking the history that gets us to this point. Um, it's been underway for a long time. Um, people, individuals, and some organizations and particular institutions have been doing these things as they have, um, you know, gotten the will or the funding or the, you know, focus or support by institutions like the National Trust for Historic Preservation. It's like all mm-hmm. of these uh, arenas are, are, are growing and developing and they're shifting. And, and we're in the middle of, you know, after I would say almost 40 years of beginning to realize that these are important topics to become part of the civic debate, that our political leadership is catching up, that um, the funders are are catching up. And some of this has to do with a very, another, you know, entirely economic dynamic. And that is that as manufacturing went away from the United States and as, and, and in fact is going away from a lot of places, and old large scale economies have, have gone away from a lot of places around the world. A lot of places have had to turn to heritage or historic tourism as a key economic, mm-hmm. you know, driver in their communities. And to do that, you look mm-hmm. at what, what story does your place have to tell? 
So all throughout Africa and especially along the coast, you've got African cities that are going, guess what? We have, you know, a deep history uh, and, and physical remnants of the slave trade that went on here, the extraction of African people. There are these castles, there are these prisons, there are forts, there are, you know, the ports. So mm-hmm. there are stories that have begun to be told over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years um, that have really picked up pace, but again, felt very slow initially. And now we're basically in that sort of tectonic plate shift movement, you know, uh, you know, the pressure yeah. has been building and this year represents, you know, the sudden earthquake of change uh, in regards to these, um, these topics. I'm not sure if you've been with the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project since 2004, but it has been around since 2004. Is that correct? No, I, we founded it. It's ours. It's, a, <laughs> it's okay. actually a project of the Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality and we launched it in uh, December of 2004, uh, which was immediately following the unveiling of the um, historic marker, which was a project that we initiated, uh, the, the marker that uh, sits at Broad Street overlooking uh, the area of the burial ground. Right. So that, that was our initiative. Yeah. So you have been working on this for quite a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems that you've gone through several different iterations of of what the memorial park might look like um, proposed both by your group and I think by other groups. And of course there was the infamous one proposed by Dwight Jones as well. Yeah. The, the memorial park concept was also our initiative and that was something that we developed between 2014 and 2015. And then uh, with the help of a group, UMass, um, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and the National Trust, it was updated and revised in 2016 and 2017. Um, and then, but you're right, there have been other proposals. And when you talk about Dwight Jones, uh, you know, former mayor Dwight Jones, and a couple different um, development groups that proposed as early as 2005, so literally within months of us deciding to form the Sacred Ground Project, Again, mostly to work on Gabriel's Rebellion and to um, build awareness about the burial ground. So much smaller sort of scale of of activity at that point. Um, uh, The first of the baseball, the luxury baseball stadium development project proposals arrived at the city of Richmond. We had to shift from just building awareness to actively fighting against having that project be realized in Shackle Bottom. And then in 2012 uh, was the one that Mayor Jones supported. He had actually uh, opposed the earlier one, um, but then he began working with uh, the developers. Um, you know, he, to his mind, he was trying to address how to, you know, develop an area that hadn't been developed and uh, realize, you know, tax income Uh, from that, but the problem was that it wasn't being done well and it's the financing of it was not uh, being dealt with properly and, and there was too much secrecy. And then so part of our deal was that if we're going to talk about why these sites are important, part of what's important about them is that black people had no control over how these sites were, came into being, very little control over how they were managed and very little control over what happened to them ultimately. And here we are in the process of reclaiming these sites and you're kind of doing it again. 
uh, right. taking away the process by which um, these things can be valued appropriately uh, and 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 made a part of the landscape, not simply, you know, put another marker up and say something huge happened here once upon a time. You included economic development measures um, in your proposal for the Memorial Park, which I thought was incredibly interesting and uh, which goes back to what you were talking about, essentially trying to address history's inequities through what we can do with the site today. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So once we did the historic marker on um, on the burial ground, overlooking the burial ground, we did the unveiling on October 10th uh, because that was the anniversary of the day in 1800 that Gabriel was executed. And probably on that site, we're still sort of piecing the <clears throat> the actual history together in terms of confirming that. But um, but that's likely where he died. And so it was like also the day he becomes an ancestor. And we had decided that we were going to be holding annual events on that date. So all of these years, we have been holding those events. And what those gave us the opportunity to do, along with public forums and, um, you know, other presentations uh, throughout the years, is to hear from people what their concerns were for the Black community in the present day. And so economic development of the neighborhoods, which had been under-resourced and gutted of, you know, employment opportunities and housing discrimination, all of these things, you know, are part of the inherited experience of the Black community and, frankly, of poor white communities um, to a degree in Richmond as well. And so when we the more we heard that, the more we basically we we could tell that we were being challenged in a way to say, you know, these economic components are a part of the history as well. And so if a site like this is going to come into being, one of the things we have to uh, be careful of is that is that the success of, you know, creating a park or a museum or any of these resources, we need to make sure that the benefit for that comes to the black community um, and, and that the black community has first voice in, in these decisions be- precisely because they didn't before. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't a matter of trying to, you know, give preferential treatment, you know, to people who have already had advantages. It's literally, you know, a, a trying to sort of balance the scales a little bit Um, because you can't fix what was done, but how you go forward is really the most important part. And so we've realized that the proposal for the Memorial Park would not be a genuine proposal for, um, you know, for justice and, and for reparations, right? Unless it actively um, developed an, uh, a, a way of working uh, equitable redevelopment uh, policies into it. I think that because the principles throughout the community proposal have been really solid. I mean, we didn't just make them up out of our heads. We did research. We consulted with a lot of people. There was a lot of input uh, that brought those principles, you know, to coalesce in that in that proposal. And then in 2018, uh, we were of the first batch of applicants for the National Trust African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. And what we sought the funding for was uh, to be able to focus on that uh, equitable redevelopment uh, process. And so we asked for funds to have a study done that would, one, show the economic viability of doing the Memorial Park in Shackle Bottom on the one hand, and then to model 
uh, case studies from around the country where this equitable redevelopment um, approach had been successful and could provide models for the city of Richmond to use here because we have every city has its own particular dynamics. So there's not like one solution that fits all, but there's a range of of processes and models and things that are out there um, that we thought we could bring as a as a resource in a single document to the city of Richmond um, to to be able to make this memorial park development um, fulfill, you know, basically what it hoped uh, to do within the community. Is all of this still moving forward despite the pandemic? And and what are you? What's on the horizon for the near term? I guess. Yeah. The, well, the near term is um, is really pragmatic. The near term is the the fact that they released funding. So that means that, and it's funding that they probably mostly already have in hand and is is very particularly allocated. So it's not a draw on any social services or human service uh, needs that are, uh, that the city definitely, you know, is dealing with. Um, the small area master plan is being developed uh, in coordination with a group that the mayor put together called the Shackle Alliance, the Sacred Ground Project, and Preservation Virginia, and several other uh, organizations, as well as developers and business owners and people like that are a part of this group. And basically what we do is we weigh in on uh, the process um, every month, uh, you know, in monthly meetings. And it allows us to sort of, um, sort of keep an eye on where the, the implementation, uh, of it and, and the descriptions of it stay in line with what we, um, what we want to see. And so the next phase of that review process, um, is, uh, zoning and zoning is a hot topic around Richmond because there was zoning, uh, uh, Ordinary, there was zoning, renewed zoning that was passed. I'm sorry, that's not even the word. <laughs> there was a zoning package that was passed two years ago, and it's called Pulse Corridor uh, Zoning, and it had to do with increasing density along the path of the uh, GRTC express bus line that runs uh, down Main Street in Shackle Bottom and then mm-hmm. turns at 14th and then runs Broad Street all the way to the west end of town. So mm-hmm. increasing density is actually the only way that the city has to increase its tax revenue because it can't expand anymore. So it has to always has to build up and build density uh, to increase the tax base. So they passed it two years ago, and now uh, they are there are factions, developer factions that are trying to increase it even further, go from eight-story buildings to 12-story buildings, which is what was approved for that, and now take it as far as 20-story buildings uh, in a certain uh-huh. section of that. In addition to that, they have reduced the number of zoning designations, which was probably helpful because I think there were more than 20, um, down to 11 or 12, and one of them is called destination zoning. And the, the, within destination zoning are, are permissions that have greater building capacity than, say, a historic, a core historic district. Core historic district is a section of shock, is applied to a section of Shackle Bottom where the buildings, um, are not more than four stories. And typically they're two story. And, uh, you know, they, they front the street and they are usually, you know, retail and residential. 
Um, and there, it's not big manufacturing, it's not big business, and it's not, you know, huge, it's not huge buildings. And yet, this is a, this is a highly coveted area for development. And so there's a lot of pressure, uh, to increase the density, especially along Main Street. Um, but destination zoning would apply specifically to the Memorial Park and a footprint that they have expanded that goes from Main Street to north of Broad Street, um, basically along, uh, Interstate 95. And that destination zoning is going to allow buildings that are at least five stories high, could be taller. And of course, that's part of the proposed design for the museum building. And so there's some of that that you want. Um, so it's a particular kind of zoning that is to support a destination. So that means supporting visitors. So that means parking and all these other things. So there's a lot to sort of work out in terms of the implications for these different kinds of zoning. But for the Memorial Park, we want the zoning that is going to protect it historically, that is going to incorporate a new um, archaeology, uh, a set of guidelines for archaeology, which the city doesn't have at this moment. So that's going to be a big plus uh, going forward. Um, and then, you know, how does this space get developed in a way that is in keeping with the historic character, but at the same time is going to need to support the numbers of visitors, you know, that we would anticipate uh, needing to be in that area in order to visit it. Since I talked with Anna, the city has moved to purchase nearly two acres of land for an enslaved African heritage campus. So this is hopefully a project we'll see break ground in the not too distant future. I hope you enjoyed hearing about it. Thanks for listening and keep your ears peeled for the next episode of the Greater Richmond History Podcast.